I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is this what the future is going to be like? Climate disaster, privileged people being able to protect themselves, everyone else flung to the wolves, as it were. Something very dark and interesting about what this represents in terms of a possible future. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So here's a phenomenon that sends a revolted shiver through me every time I hear about it. In exclusive pockets around the world, rich, white, mostly men, are prepping for end times. They are hoarding resources and building bunkers, putting billions of dollars into funding their spot on Mars. They could be funding renewable energy projects or putting their efforts into restoring political stability, finding ways for humanity to survive on our beloved planet. But no, these end times ultras are taking neoliberal individualism to its nth degree and just looking after themselves exclusively shutting the rest of us out. Now I'm going to say it straight. I find this phenomenon vile. Rather than putting their often vast wealth and resources to helping solve the problem that they helped cause, things like the AI revolution, biotech risk, the climate crisis and pandemic risk, they instead effectively say, out of here suckers, you can live with the chaos and mess. Dublin-based writer Mark O'Connell very much feels the same way and set out on a perverse pilgrimage of the prepper hotspots around the world to understand it all, which he chronicles in his latest book, Notes from the Apocalypse. I wanted to have this chat with Mark because, to be honest, I wanted to understand the mentality that is driving these people to abort mission on the human endeavour. I mean, do they honestly want to live on a planet where the bulk of humans are going to be wiped out? Have they thought about how they'll feel when this happens? And who do they think will do all that low-paid, dirty work that they're used to, you know, and make the products that they like to consume and service their bunkers, clean their houses on Mars? There is so much to question here and to reflect upon. And Mark plants this wild idea. That is that these preppers say more about white male fantasy than fear. This is a perspective that I find very helpful in terms of navigating some of the weird stuff happening in the world today. I'm also going to apologize. I'm recording this episode out of a shed, a kind of wooden yacht club on an island called Hunker in a fjord in Norway, because it's the only place with internet 
on the island. And look, there's been loud thunderstorms all day and I just had to work with what I had. I'm sitting under the regatta trophy cabinet as I record it, but a bunch of yachty types, which is kind of appropriate given the subject matter of this episode, come in and uh, boisterously interrupt a few times. Anyway, to our guest, Mark O'Connell. You're talking to me from Ireland, is that right? From Dublin? Yeah, I'm in Dublin right now, which is where I live. You share somewhat of a displeasure in what is going on around the world with these preppers preparing for end times. And from what I understand, your concern for all of this came from your concern about the climate crisis. You travel the world to meet these people who are somewhat gleefully or at least pointedly investing in preparing for end times. What was it specifically that grabbed your attention and saw you do this pilgrimage around the world? The book began really as a book about anxiety in the sense that I wanted to write, first of all, you know, it didn't begin as a book about preppers, in other words, it began with this sort of attempt to grapple with my own collection of inchoate anxieties about the future, really. I had very young kids at the time, and I still have young kids. But my anxieties were starting to kind of coalesce around climate change and the sort of unknowability of the future and the sense that things were feeling like they were starting to fragment. So all these kind of like quite sort of common anxieties that people have these days. And I knew that I wanted to write about that because it felt emotionally important for myself. And also it felt like a politically important phenomenon to write about. I knew that I couldn't just write a book about vague anxieties about the future. I'm not that kind of writer. I needed something to hang it on to. So during that time, I found myself getting quite preoccupied with watching YouTube videos and reading blogs by doomsday bears who are kind of obsessively preparing for civilizational collapse by, you know, digging bunkers and stockpiling tin goods, becoming experts on water filtration techniques and so on. There was something about it that in a weird sort of way connected with my own anxiety, as in these people were in their own way anxious about the uncertainty of the future and the sort of apparent instability of the systems that we live by. But their way of dealing with it was completely at odds with my own instincts um, in the sense that they were you know, radically individualistic, quite selfish, very sort of hyper-capitalistic, often quite toxically male and, and so on. So I knew when I started to get quite deep into these prepper videos and so on, that this was a way into writing about essentially climate anxiety. So that's really where the book came from. It was a way to write about something that was otherwise quite vague. What a dangerous rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> what I might get you to do is actually talk through what is happening around the world, what these end time ultras, as you call them, are doing in the various pockets around the planet. Can we get a bit of a picture of what it's looking like? The book takes in sort of various ways of, that people have of preparing for their own often quite disparate ideas I look at the sort of doomsday prepper movement. People generally overwhelmingly white men, very often American, kind of right-wing men, who are convinced that civilization is very fragile and that the way to deal with this is, as I say, to stockpile things, stock up on guns, tin goods, build bunkers, become proficient in ways of protecting oneself and one's family and one's property. To call it a movement is, is probably a bit of a stretch because they're very individualistic. They're sharing information in terms of like internet channels and, and so on. Can you describe what's happening in South Dakota? Because you went and visited a bunch of bunkers down there. Can you actually give us a picture of what it looks like, what these white American men are doing? 
there's a number of companies that are kind of operating in this space and who are drawing from this kind of prepper community. And one of them that I came across is a guy called uh, Robert Vecino, who is a really uh, fascinating, objectionable figure in a lot of ways, former advertising executive who 10 or 15 years ago started to move into the, what I would call the apocalyptic doomsday real estate sector. Oh God. (laughs) He's made quite a lot of money designing and building luxury bunkers for very high net worth individuals, largely unsurprisingly, I suppose, in America. And he's been selling space in these very high spec, very kind of luxurious underground facilities where you would have underground cinemas, wine cellars, cigar humidors, hydroponic farms, all this kind of stuff. And these are facilities that are set up so that if some kind of cataclysmic event should happen, whatever it might be, these people who have essentially bought apocalyptic timeshare in these places can go to these secret locations, hold up there for however long it might be, and sort of weather the collapse of civilization. My understanding is that I think they contain DNA vaults and golf courses. How does that plan out? This is what's really fascinating. It's because there are these locations that people can go to where they can kind of continue to live a quite normal, quite luxurious life in these kind of very protected communities. And of course, there's essentially private armies that you buy into. The place that I visited wasn't one of these luxury facilities. It was actually aimed at the lower end of the market. And this was the place in South Dakota, which was vast tract of land, about three quarters the size of the island of Manhattan, that was originally built as a army munitions facility towards the end of the Second World War. They're not underground bunkers. They're sort of overground bunkers, if that makes sense. They're sort of reinforced concrete and steel hexagonal structures. And so this has been empty for decades and decades uh, as an army facility, and it's on what's now a dairy farm. And Vecino bought this place for very little money. When I visited it, he was selling off these bunkers to people who would not have had the same kind of net worth as the sort of luxury apocalyptic bunker demographic that he would have originally been sort of addressing himself to. But you can buy these bunkers for, I think it was something around the region of $30,000 and you fix them up yourself. And the idea was that kind of ad hoc post-apocalyptic community would grow up around this place. You know, I was just struck by quite a lot of things, one of which was the sheer visual surrealness of this setup, but also the idea of dealing with uncertainty and anxiety around the future in this way that seemed to me to be almost a kind of reducto ad absurdium of how our civilization in in a lot of ways already functions. You know, this sort of hyper-capitalist way of to hell with everyone else, protect yourself. I want to unpick those various aspects in a moment, but perhaps you could also describe some of the other places that you go to around the world. I think in New Zealand, you go to Lake Wanaka, which I've passed through before. It's a beautiful place. It's where the tech billionaire, Peter Thiel, has obviously taken out New Zealand citizenship so that he can buy vast amounts of property there and retire there once the apocalypse or the revolution arrives. Can you talk me through what you saw there? It was a slightly complicated sort of way of getting into this. I I was in touch with a really incredible Kiwi artist named Simon Denny, who was working on a project about Peter Thiel and the nature of his interest in New Zealand. This was something that was bubbling up in the conversation down there quite a lot at the time. Uh, Thiel had bought this vast property on the shores of Lake Wanaka and was planning to turn it into essentially a compound. 
um, a place for him to retreat to in the event of some kind of civilizational collapse event in the US and in the sort of uh, northern part of the planet more generally. And so I went down there and talked to people about the perception of not just Teal, but there was a, a tendency, a trend at the time for a lot of very wealthy Silicon Valley uh, tech people to buy up land in New Zealand because the perception was and is that New Zealand is a very safe place uh, to come to when the rest of the world is in a state of chaos. So I wanted to sort of get into the implications of that politically, culturally, because of course it's, it's very kind of tied in with New Zealand's colonial history, I suppose. There's a kind of a, a new version of colonialism happening in this sort of stealth way with Silicon Valley people seeing New Zealand as this kind of almost virgin territory, this kind of blank slate that they can buy up land down there. And there's a lot of kind of language around reshaping a society and using mm -hmm. a prospects as a set of opportunities to kind of build a sort of a libertarian, utopian, post-apocalyptic society. So all that stuff is very dark and, and very interesting. And, and New Zealand seemed to be a laboratory in which a lot of these ideas were being played out. So that's the sort of context in which I went down there to, to write about Teal and his apocalyptic ideas. A lot of New Zealanders do listen to this podcast. So I'd be interested to hear what did you find with the locals' reaction to all of this? Because the other aspect to this, of course, is that New Zealand is probably being deemed one of the most temperate places in terms of global warming. New Zealand will be relatively protected, at least in the short term. And I think there's an awareness of that amongst New Zealanders of like, my goodness, we're going to have this influx of people coming here trying to find safety from a warming planet. What were the locals' reactions? A lot of the people I talked to, first of all, in Auckland, were left-wing, often activists, sometimes people of Maori kind of descent. And they had a very particular view on this, which is that what we're seeing here is a bunch of American and European white guys looking at New Zealand, again, as this kind of blank slate, as a place that can be terrenalist. So that was very interesting because one of the kind of themes of my book, I suppose, is the way in which ideas, kind of apocalyptic or utopian ideas about the future, very often recapitulate things that have already been patterned in history. This sort of colonial return is something that comes up again and again in my conversations with New Zealanders, as in like, this is a return of what had happened in the past. There was a lot of anxiety about this. I think fair to say contempt for these guys, for these kind of uh, Silicon Valley tech people who are, you know, really know nothing about New Zealand and its particular and complex culture and history and just see it as a location where if things are going belly up in the rest of the world, New Zealand is far enough away that it can be a kind of a, almost like a, a country level bunker or retreat. So there's a lot of kind of ambivalence about that. A certain amount of kind of fascination that there is this interest in New Zealand, a certain amount of, particularly among the kind of, you know, real estate people who I talk to and the business people, a certain amount of, well, you know, maybe we should be courting this a little, maybe we should be kind of turning this to account. But in, in general, amongst sort of, I guess, ordinary New Zealanders, a sense that it's just too easy for these people to buy up huge amounts of land and close it off. And, and Teal in particular was a figure of real unease for New Zealanders at this time because he famously took out citizenship of New Zealand and the way in which he achieved citizenship seemed to be not very above board. He seemed to be kind of essentially buying it through various kind of investment plans and so on. It was just a real anxiety about what this meant for the future. And, you know, people have this sense that why 
is someone like Peter Thiel buying up land in New Zealand? Why is he building what seems to be an apocalyptic bunker compound? What does he know about the future? What access to information does he have that we don't have? And what resources is he going to be able to hoard that we're not going to have? I mean, that's what all of this presents, doesn't it, for locals? My interest in it is almost at the level of metaphor in the sense that what this kind of represents is this sense that all of this is, is a sort of an extreme manifestation of the way our system is already set up, which is that in times of crisis, and, and you know, to, just to even speak about climate change, there is this like very obvious inequality in terms of who suffers, who gets to protect themselves, who bears the brunt of these very unpredictable situations. And so there is this sort of sense in the book of something flickering on the horizon of the future in the sense that, is this what the future is going to be like? Climate disaster, privileged people being able to protect themselves, you know, battening down the hatches, everyone else, you know, sort of being flung to the wolves as it were. So yeah, there's something very dark and interesting about what this represents in terms of a possible future. I totally agree. And that's why we need to be having these conversations now while we can actually have debate about it, perhaps do something to ensure that division doesn't actually play out. That colonisation parallel, which is something that Australians and New Zealanders are acutely aware of, and as are the Irish, of course, it sort of leads me to the whole Mars thing, the Elon Musk, let's just take off, let's ruin planet Earth, we're going to give up there, you guys can be left on planet Earth to rot. And we're going to take off to the next new shiny thing. So the whole Mars mission to me is all of this, but writ large. I think you investigated that, didn't you? You came across a convention of people totally working towards moving to Mars. Can you talk through that movement for us? Well, there's an organization called the Mars Society, which has been running for 30 years or so. And this is a bunch of enthusiasts for the idea of Mars colonization. Again, this is the terminology that they themselves use. They think of the prospect of human settlement of Mars in explicitly kind of colonial terms, which I find very interesting. But Musk himself came to his, you know, Mars dream through the, the Mars Society. So yeah, I went along to one of their um, annual conventions in Pasadena, Los Angeles, just kind of attempted to get to grips with these ideas around human settlement of Mars and, and what the dream is, what it means for the future. It's kind of like a higher level of what I'm talking about in terms of both the doomsday preppers and the kind of billionaire tech people in New Zealand in the sense that it's a way of dealing with the prospect of uncertainty and future catastrophe by escaping, just fleeing the site of a catastrophe. So the rhetoric around Mars colonization very often focuses around this idea that eventually something is going to happen to the planet. We're going to be hit by an asteroid. Climate change is going to make the place unlivable. Whatever it is, you know, Earth is quite a fragile environment. So the idea that the solution to this is to essentially go to Mars and, and build a new civilization there and become what they call a, a multi-planetary species, I find this really interesting and was obviously quite objectionable because really what's needed is solutions here on this planet because this is the only place we're ever going to have in which humanity can can flourish. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to, to sort of pick apart politics of the idea of Mars colonization. The point that you just raised there about flourishing, planet Earth is the only place that we are going to be able to flourish as a species is really important. When I think about what life on Mars would 
be like. It really is, you know, not much chop, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's a horrible concept. We are of this planet. We emerged from the primordial soup and everything on this planet is part of us. The idea of transplanting to another planet, it horrifies me. I really want to actually get a feel for some of the discussions happening at these conferences and within this society, this network. Are they discussing that? Are they excited about life on Mars and what it could look like? Is it seen as a better option? Or are they not even thinking through those kind of moral and spiritual aspects? I mean, it's very interesting because it's a very optimistic movement in a lot of ways. You know, they don't focus too much on the kind of catastrophic scenarios that might happen on Earth. This is kind of part of the rhetoric for why we need to go to Mars. But really, it's quite a positive vision for most of these people in that they're very excited about the prospect of really exploration. So when they talk about Mars colonization, they talk about it in terms of almost recapturing wildly optimistic sort of attitude towards the future that was quite prevalent in the middle of the 20th century during the Cold War and the space age and so on. I'm generally very critical of the idea of Mars colonization, but there is something quite optimistic and there's a kind of a a quite touching yearning quality to it. I do kind of allow for that space a little bit in the book, but really what I ultimately end up landing on and being very interested in is this idea of, you know, as I say, Mars colonization. So a lot of the rhetoric around it, a lot of the kind of language and a lot of the kind of imaginative sort of conjuring around the idea of getting to Mars has to do with really going back to an earlier sort of phase of specifically American history and this idea of kind of manifest destiny. There's very often an explicit link between the idea of getting to Mars, exploring Mars, colonizing Mars, taming this wild land. And it very often links explicitly in these people's imaginations and their language to the colonial foundation of the United States and the kind of the myth of the Wild West and taming this sort of savage land. So that's very interesting to me. And it seems to me to be at least as much about a sort of a glorification of the past as it is about any kind of real prospect for the future. Mark, that's super interesting, that idea of harking back to an era. As you've mentioned a couple of times, all of this is a very male, white, rich phenomenon. If we look at the male aspect of it, you argue in the book that this is all about escapism. It's very selfish, but you argue that it reflects almost little boy fantasies of the rugged individual male fighting the natural forces. And I think you quote the cultural critic Sarah Sharma in the book, who writes about this quite a lot, that the notion of exiting is an exercise of fantasy of patriarchal power. These men who get to withdraw from the world instead of reckoning with it. And one thing that you pick out from her work is that this idea of exit, it actually prevents care, which is a very feminine response. You know, the idea of working with what you've got, the mutual precariousness of the human condition. Was this something that you found disturbing? This notion of the fantasy of exit, the rugged individual escaping the natural forces rather than working with and healing you know, nature. What was your reaction to that? You're a white man. How do you feel about observing this? The fact that I'm a white man, that probably led me to write about this topic in this particular way. What I think I'm writing about in the book, to a large extent, is this idea of exit as a male fantasy. You know, whether it's doomsday preppers, Silicon Valley tech billionaires, or Elon Musk talking about going to Mars or whatever it might be, there is this kind of 
constant repetition of this pattern. I say in the book that preppers, and I think this goes for sort of uh, all these levels that I'm talking about, but, but that preppers are preparing not so much for their fears, but for their fantasies. So there is a level of oh, interesting kind of desire. There's a level of desire here, I think. And this is one of the interesting things about the idea of civilizational collapse or the apocalypse, in that at some level, they want this to happen. I don't think you can spend as much time as these people do obsessing about apocalyptic scenarios without... Hoping for it. <laughs> yeah. And I think the reason that, that there's some desire here is that when you talk about civilization collapsing and all the kind of protections that we kind of live our lives through in society, breakdown of supply chains, the breakdown of the rule of law and so on, what then happens is it's just the individual, a sort of a Hobbesian war of all against all. In most ways, a very bleak way of thinking about the future and a very bleak way of thinking about what civilization is. But there's this idea that amongst these people that civilization is actually a very thin veneer across chaos. And when it breaks down, what you get is the individual who has to kind of test himself against this sort of inherent savagery. Yes. And has to protect himself and protect his family, protect his property. And really what it is, is a kind of cowboy fantasy, fantasy of the kind of rugged individualist, the kind of this sort of idea that's very much embedded in America's idea of itself and the American man's idea of himself. And it's very interesting that it comes at a time when these privileges and these kind of cultural prioritizations are kind of breaking down. Yeah. You know, the, the white, straight American male is kind of increasingly under question as the sort of protagonist of reality, particularly in American culture. So this fantasy is kind of a fantasy of reclaiming that sort of rugged individualist version of what it means to be a man. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The other thing, Mark, that you pick up on, of course, is the fact that these are the ultra wealthy and you wrote that these end times ultras seem unbothered by civilizational collapse as long as they could carry on creating wealth for themselves. And it points to the obvious, like these wealthy people in their bunkers or if they're on Mars, you know, in their very exclusive communities, we have to ask who are going to service them? Where are they going to draw their maids and their, their servants and their cleaners from? And also, who are going to continue to buy the things that they manufacture that keep them wealthy? It's a really interesting question. And it's sort of like it's a question that's already kind of becoming current and live in 
our current situation, such radical wealth inequalities and, and so, so much kind of instability and, you know, precariousness among the kind of uh, lower economic levels that we're already seeing a kind of advanced flickering of this future. You know, how can our economic system sustain itself in this way? You know, uh, are people going to be able to afford to buy this stuff and so on? And I don't really get too deep into the kind of economic questions of it. You know, I'm not an, I'm not an economist, but it does seem to be inherently unstable you know even at the level of like who's going to fly the private jet to get to new zealand if the pilots aren't invited invited. exactly you know you've got to have some kind of uh, system in place there so it's it's not a kind of an obvious one we're seeing kind of the cracks appearing already in a lot of ways which is why i wanted to write about this stuff you know in writing about the future throughout the book of course the book is about the future and i'm very interested in what the prospects are for the future but really it's a way for me to write about the present. The future, in a very obvious sense, doesn't exist, but it does exist as a set of imaginative prospects. And the way in which we imagine the future is, I think, a really interesting way of thinking about the present. I think that is a really powerful aspect of your book. It's like what we're exploring here is it's a portent, but it's also highly reflective of what is happening now, this fragmentation and disintegration. And it's exposing the faults that we're all feeling at the moment, this idea that separation is no longer serving us, that we really can't remove ourselves from cooperation. I mean, this is quoted many times over. I think the definition of apocalypse, it sort of comes from the Greek word, I think, apocalypsos, which actually means to uncover or reveal. We're sort of in a semi-apocalypse. I think you described COVID as a a half-assed apocalypse, you know. So we're getting a little bit of a taste test, you know, of what's to come. (laughs) It's revealing the faults in the current system, which is a great opportunity. This is why I love talking about this stuff because it gives us a chance to correct now before it's too late. We're seeing what the future could look like because it's actually reflecting so much on what we're doing right now. One of the sort of interesting aspects of this experience of of publishing this book, it came out right on the cusp of the pandemic, came out in April 2020. And as it was coming out, the sort of conversation around the future and apocalyptic events and so on shifted and started to coalesce around this weird, frightening virus that was suddenly everywhere. And what was interesting was that, you know, my attitude towards doomsday preppers and the idea of kind of obsessively preparing for apocalyptic events, I had been kind of ferment of sort of healthy contempt for. And when the book came out, there was this moment of sort of uncertainty where I was sort of thinking, well, maybe these people have a point, you know, maybe because at this point, I'm I'm sure you remember, there was sort of a lot of anxiety about supply chains. There was, you know, people, I think actually in Australia fighting over toilet paper and so on in the supermarket. This is a strange kind of surreal prospect to see some of these things starting to bubble up in reality in the present. But I think what we found really quite quickly with COVID was that you can't deal with a crisis like this burrowing down to your own individualism, just looking out for yourself. The places and, and the ways in which people have done that have often been really problematic and, and caused you know bigger problems. COVID, to the extent that we've dealt with it, admittedly very imperfectly at a global level, the things that have worked have been communitarian responses, people acting out of sort of collective self-interest. And I think 
the same is absolutely true of climate change. You know, a solution that is just a solution for the individual is really no solution at all. So I would hope that the thing that we are learning slowly and imperfectly is that the way to deal with these crises is to deal with them collectively. And I think somehow viewing the future, viewing these realms where capitalism and all the ways that we've been operating are not going to be able to serve us. They're going to leave the bulk of us behind. I think the horrifying picture that that presents can get us to think about how do we want to live right now because it will probably determine how we live going forward. One of the other things I think you cover off the fact that there's this male element, there's this rich and or uber wealthy element to all of this, and then, of course, there's the white element. You mentioned that almost all the preppers are white, and you also add that they seem somewhat fixated on race. What's that all about? I imagine it fits into the colonisation piece and that fantasy from sort of the, the Wild West of Americans' colonial history. But can you speak a little bit more about that so we can get a better feel? Certainly that is a very notable kind of reality of all of this. I don't want to tar them all with one brush because, you know, there are left-wing preppers, there are right-wing preppers, there are kind of libertarian preppers, and there are preppers of various different kind of cultural and ethnic backgrounds and so on. But yeah, overwhelmingly, it's a white male phenomenon and it's very much an american phenomenon for reasons i suppose that i've kind of touched on in that prepper ideology is something that kind of connects at a very deep level with an american fantasy of self-sufficiency and manifest destiny and you know taming the west and so on but one of the things that i found when i was looking into this was that a lot of the kind of language and imagery the preppers draw very deeply on has to do with civil unrest and so a lot of the kind of ways in which they imagine civilization collapsing often has to do with urban populations sort of descending into chaos and violence and the prepper being a person who has to kind of uh, protect themselves and their families against these kind of marauding urban populations and i noticed when i was looking into this that a lot of the kind of images that they use are drawn from black lives matter protests police brutality in American cities and so on. And I noticed this again and again as a pattern of black men rioting, jumping on police cars and so on. These were used as examples of the kind of civilization unrest that the preppers should be preparing for. And I thought that this was really interesting to see again and again race coming into it in these kind of ways that were, you know, not, not even unconscious, but I think sort of not always spoken. And it's quite interesting to me because very often the images that they were using, I noticed, were images of communities reacting to a situation in which for them, essentially, civilization had already broken down. So if you were living as a young black male in the inner city of some American city, the police are not there to protect you. You have no position of being protected by the state or by the rule of law. Black Lives Matter protests in general, are reactions to that situation where you were not protected by the state, you were victimized by it. And so there is a kind of an irony there of a lot of these images that were being used are people for whom civilization meaningfully has already kind of collapsed. And, and to use these situations as a way of conjuring the threat of civilizational collapse, I thought was very ironic and very kind of telling. But I suppose the prepper fantasy in general is a very white fantasy. It's a very colonial fantasy. It, it goes back to the sort of John Wayne kind of idea of American sort of rugged masculinity, which is a very white and very kind of racially coded set of ideas of maleness. 
that particular idea of maleness um, has reigned supreme for a couple hundred years now. But of course, those elements, whiteness or the supremacy of whiteness, masculinity and so on, they're all being called into question. They're all being challenged. And so, of course, it's really no surprise that you see white, rich men reacting like this, trying to defend the power. You also somewhat facetiously uh, draw a correlation with wraparound Oakley sunglasses, um, which I find very interesting, you know, a correlation between Oakley brand shades and the holding of extreme reactionary views. I suppose that's somewhat of a throwaway association, but you do mention it in the book. Why was that? Because it was something that I kept noticing. Uh, You know, it is very throwaway and it was sort of a comic aside in the book. But I stand by it absolutely. Show me a man in wrap red Oakley shades, and I'll show you someone with overwhelmingly likely uh, right wing or libertarian sympathies. I had like a sort of series of sort of semi serious conversations with my editor on this, and you know, because he's American, and we got into these conversations. What is it about Oakley shades and people on the sort of far right end of the spectrum of politics? And and his theory was something along the lines of. Oakley's became really popular at a time in American culture when, you know, it's like the Gulf War, the 90s, you know, the sort of fall of the Berlin Wall, the Cold War had ended. America was at this point of like maximum uh, supremacy. There's a kind of a military sort of feel to to the Oakley shades. I'm not quite sure I can really stand by this analysis of why these sunglasses are so popular with these men that I'm talking about. I guess it correlates that time in history when they were fashionable also correlates with the time of peak white hetero American supremacy. They're holding on to that fashionable uh, reminder, I suppose. Mm. I guess that's what your editor's mm. trying to suggest. Look, this is a somewhat self-serving question, but I've got to ask, I mean, did you actually take anything away that might be helpful? Should the world take a turn for the worse? Like, did you find yourself actually going, hmm, I might remember that one, should a war break out or civil unrest occur? You know, I mentioned the the book coming out at, at, at the exact point when COVID was, was becoming a very serious problem and the world had gone into lockdown in various ways. And there was a sense when the book was received in this, this quite strange way, the word that kept being used was prescient. What did this guy know about the future? What, what did he know that, that everyone else didn't know? I found that kind of amusing and, and quite ironic because I had no more idea than anyone else that this thing was coming. And in fact, you know, I wrote an entire book about the apocalypse and apocalyptic scenarios that came out in April 2020, in which I think I mentioned viral pandemics maybe once or twice in in passing, but I had no sense of what might be coming. One of the things I realized at that point was that despite having written an entire book about the apocalypse, I hadn't really learned anything from a purely practical point of view that I was able to use. You know, at the time lived in a small house in the, in the inner city of Dublin, didn't really have the space to dig a bunker in the back garden anyway. I'm really bad on practicalities in general. You know, I think it's a book that if you read it with that sort of outcome in mind, you probably would be disappointed. No, I'm afraid I have to demur on that particular point. I don't think that's a bad thing. If the book instead encourages people to save this planet and leaves them with an absolute vile taste in their mouth about this alternative, then I think that's a great thing personally. But where did you land after all of this, you set out to sort of understand your own fear and anxiety around the climate crisis in particular. How would you sum up where you sit now, having done, I think, this sort of three-year pilgrimage to write the book? So the book began in this way of trying to grapple with 
my own kind of anxieties. And I was at a, a point of really being very uncertain about the future, focusing in very much on a pessimistic view of things. The apocalypse for me was always it's a metaphor. You know, I don't believe in the end of the world. I don't believe that climate change is going to, you know, wipe life from the planet or that we're likely to be wiped out by, you know, nuclear bombs or asteroids hitting or whatever. The apocalypse is a way of giving focus to those anxieties. The book, in a way, was a process of metabolizing my own kind of darkest, most pessimistic ideas about the future. It was arguably not a very healthy thing to do to spend three years with my head in these very dark places. But I did come out of it with a slightly different sensibility about these things. And it's very hard to put a, a sort of a, a strict narrative on, on mm. how this came about. There's, I mean, people who've read the book, there's been a sort of a range of, of reactions to the book in terms of, you know, people's emotional response to it. But I think the kind of most common one is that it is, people have found it strangely uplifting. And I think, you know, I come by that, I hope, quite honestly. I would put it like this, you can see the, the editor's hand. You can see the conversation happening where the editor is like, yeah, really like this draft, but I think we need to give something that people can hold on to, something that people can come out of the book and think to themselves, okay, all is not lost, we're not doomed. I don't really do that in the book, but there is a moment of kind of a personal trajectory that sort of lightens towards the end of the book where I've spent, as I say, three years thinking about this stuff. And it sort of became apparent to me that a pessimistic view of the future is not helpful. A, a sort of dwelling and wallowing in a sense of doom and futility is kind of um, counterproductive and, and is not going to get you anywhere. The book ends in this really quite ambiguous way. I've got to live in the moment. We're here now. The world is and always has been uncertain and unstable. People have always lived in times of radical instability and uncertainty. People have always brought children into situations in which it's arguably difficult to justify bringing children into the world. It's always been the end of the world. The apocalypse is kind of an ongoing phenomenon. It's always a going concern throughout history, throughout human life. And just a sense of having to kind of adjust to that and come to terms with that uncertainty is something that I took from the book. Yes, I've very much got that from your book. And I think that all of these discussions, they can potentially induce panic. But at some point, we also have to reckon with actually living in the moment because that's what is left. I wrote a book mm. that came out at a similar time, Mark, called This One Wild and Precious Life. Um, there are many books, I think, that uh, came out that almost somehow predicted or anticipated COVID. And as a sort of test case, it was an incredible space to be doing publicity for a book, you know, as, as COVID raged, almost expressing some of the things that we all wrote about. And I've interviewed a number of people on this podcast who put out similar books at the same time. It's a phenomenon um, which I find very interesting, but all of us, and I think a lot of people here listening, I think the takeaway really is, right, life can get hard. Life has been like this for a very long time. We've always got existential demise hanging over our heads. So how are we going to live? We need to live fully and with consideration and with full respect, I feel, for this one wild and precious life on this planet. So thank you so much, Mark, for exploring these themes from a slightly different angle. And so much of what you write about, I feel, has a lesson for us all right now and can be part of what we use 
to move ahead into the future and hopefully heal rather than exit. Oh, thank you, Sarah. That's a really beautiful thought. As Mark and I discussed briefly, apocalypses reveal or uncover. You know, that's the the Greek definition. And this prepper phenomenon, this movement, certainly reveals a bunch of haunting and ugly reflections. But it also proffers some lessons or clues for managing, I think, many of the challenges that we are facing right now in the present. And that's what I got from this conversation with Mark. Mark finds that the motivation behind this selfish and divisive exiting is not so much about fear, but is a plane out of white male fantasies. The lone crusader who leaves the chaos and destruction and conquers virgin territory. This perspective has really helped me understand a lot of the reluctance of the current power structures to, you know, staying with the problem, to fixing it and to healing and to cooperation. I also think that fleshing out and learning about this movement and the visceral horror or disdain that many of us feel when we learn about it is very important. It's the extreme neoliberal individualism and selfishness that is so abhorrent, I think. But it's the same neoliberal individualism and selfishness that we are all engaged in now, that we are all allowing to play out around us in the present moment and at the expense of care and cooperation. And as Mark says, the whole thing speaks more about the present than the future. So the opportunity we have is to correct things now, to swing the pendulum away from this individualism to cooperation and care so that we can have, you know, a thriving future. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it about the place. And look, while you're listening, feel free to toggle to the homepage and give it a good five-star rating. And again, I apologise for the wild Norwegian outpost background noises. I do think it probably added to the whole vibe. Anyway, I'll see you next week for more wildness. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.